Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Last week, the author of the anti-protest bill denied what seemed to me to be the clear reading of the bill, So this week we lawyer up. 283,000 VA employees gear up for contract negotiations. We talk to a member of the negotiating team. MLB players are locked out by the bosses. Child poverty increased by 50% and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show today, we've got a phone number. You can call in uh, 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. And you can also leave us a voicemail throughout the week. We do check those, and uh, a lot of times, most of the time, we will play those on the radio. So uh, if you listen to the podcast, that is an option as well. You can leave us a voicemail anytime, and we'll get it. Not going to wake us up because it's not going to ring our phones. Um If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us online anywhere. We are wherever you listen to your podcasts, all at the Valley Labor Report. You can listen to us on YouTube at the Valley Labor Report. Um, And remember, uh, your support keeps us on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners, and we have a new hat that you can buy that will look really cool, and it will support the show. Adam, let's show the folks on the stream what that looks like one more time. It's And, and for everybody that's listening just audio or on the radio, it's a trucker hat, and it's got a patch on the front with a graph, right? And the graph has... The line going up with unions on the x-axis, good things on the y-axis. So as as unions increase, good things increase, and that's pretty obvious uh, from reality. If you want to become a sustaining member of the program or buy one of those hats, you can go to unionly.io slash o slash tvlr. That is unionly.io slash o slash tvlr, or... Um, you can actually go to our newly launched website, tvlr.fm, and you can scroll down to the online store. Uh, you can scroll down to the online store, and you'll be able to get it that way as well. Um, and if you're a member of a union, you should get your local to sponsor the show. Reach out to me for more details on that. So um, we've been following 
very closely the movement of the anti-protest bill in the Alabama legislature, HB2. It passed the state house a couple of weeks ago and has gone to Senate, to the Senate for consideration. We did get word from a Republican state senator, actually, saying that it has zero chance of passing the Senate in its current form and that there is not an appetite to fix it. So we're pretty hopeful that it is effectively dead for this session. But This is not the first time that this bill has been introduced, and I suspect it's not the last time. So I did want to talk about it at least one more time, um, because the author of the bill, uh, we we had the sponsor of the bill on. He's not the author of the bill. Maybe we can talk about that. But we had the sponsor of the bill on last week, and he made some assertions that, that we very much disagreed on. So we wanted to spend a few minutes evaluating those claims with an expert, um, you know, because... If you want to play devil's advocate for the bill, you could say, well, you know, you and Adam, you're just like, no, nothing, regular working folk, right? And this is a big, important state legislator that uh, is dis- disagreeing with you, and he's the one that sponsored the bill. So surely he knows more than you. Um, you know, laws are written weird, and presumably people that write the laws would have a better idea at how those laws are going to be implemented. So uh, even though the readings, they do seem clear to us, we wanted to uh, we wanted to get a bit of external feedback, so we're bringing out the big guns. We've got the former president of the National Lawyers Guild. He is also the current co-chair of the Alabama chapter, and he's sometimes a legal observer at protests. David Gespas, David, thanks for taking the time to join us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's my pleasure, although I question. The idea that I'm an expert, but I'll do the best I can. <laughs> well, I mean, look, if the president of the National Lawyers Guild is not an expert in the law, then, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> certainly you more know than me, and we'll leave it at that at least. <laughs> so let's start, generally speaking. One of the frustrations for me was that he cited as a need for this bill the dropping of the charges associated with protests in 2020. And my contention was that the changing of the law does not change how the DA is going to enforce it, right? The, uh, you know, the DA, there, there were charges on the books that presumably a properly motivated DA could have pursued, but the DA did not want to pursue those for whatever reason. Some of the re- uh, some of the times the charges were bogus and wouldn't have gone through, and there were some that you probably could have gotten a conviction on, but the DA didn't want to do that. And and, and so it seemed to me that a that a large part of his problem was just that was just the DA that he wants to elect a different DA. Am I reading that right? Uh, pretty much. Yeah. You know, this was at, these were actually city charges. So it was the uh, Birmingham City Prosecutor's Office. And the city that made those determinations, and basically, they, you know, there was a question about what whether the uh, curfew was even reasonable in the first place, and right, it, so that the idea of you know prosecuting seventy five people or something like that who didn't do anything other than show up um, was obviously anathema to the city, and. Mm-hmm. That, you know, truth be told, I would guess that if this law were in place, the city would be even more reluctant to do it because there'd be mandatory jail time. Right. Right. And the, you know, the he, he kept on and kept on as if it's not illegal to burn down buildings. 
kept on referring to that. But the charges were all for um, even the people that were originally arrested. Those charges were, were none of those were for destruction. Like they, they didn't catch the people that were at, presumably they didn't catch the people that were actually involved in to the extent that property damage and arson happened. They didn't even catch those people. So, you know, the again, with that. It seems to me that his his problem was not with the law, but with the ability of police officers to find who was responsible for the damage. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And it's also the fact that the property that whatever property damage did take place took place after the protest had, uh, had ended. When the mayor said, give me 20, 48 hours and I'll get rid of the monument. And people went on their way, and evidently, I was you know I was there for the the demonstration, but I left after that. But evidently, after that happened, there was some you know property damage here and there uh, that was carried out by people who were may have been a part participating in the de- demonstration, may not have been, but there was right. no demonstration going on at that time. So it was just individuals, right. And the people, right. you know, the people that got arrested were arrested for a curfew violation, so which had nothing to do with the the property damage, other than exactly. you know, some coincidence in time. Sure, sure. And so let's let's get into the nitty gritty then, because he claimed that, and this was astonishing to me, but he claimed that to even be arrested and thus subject to the twenty four hour hold for rioting. The cops would have to be able to prove that you damaged property or caused harm to a person. Let's play that clip uh, about um, about rioting, Adam. I do not want somebody who is peacefully protesting uh, being arrested. But when did we stop uh, holding people accountable for noncompliance? The mayor of Birmingham had a curfew violation in play. Uh, There was lawful orders given on a bullhorn. We had undercover officers in the crowd so they could they can testify that they heard it clearly. And then some people refused to leave. One young lady said, I did nothing but sit on the bench. Well, no, there's a curfew violation in play. We've told you an hour, hour and a half every 15 minutes that people will be arrested if you don't disperse. And then you didn't walk away from where the buildings were starting to be looted and set on fire. Mm-hmm. You walked towards it. You walked towards it. So sure. So she should be you, locked in a cage for 30 days. Okay. Glad that we no, agree. No, no, no. Bill don't say that, brother. Don't don't listen. It if does, you don't agree man. with me, don't it add does. stuff to it. No, okay. it does not. I'm a- Let me finish what I'm saying. Sure. I'm asking you that question. If this person were there in violation of a curfew violation, a lawful order to disperse, is headed towards the, the rioting situation, what do you expect police officers to do? To put their lives in danger? My question is they would be arrested for failure to disperse under the bill I got or curfew violation, and neither of that results in a 30-day or a 24-hour hold. All right, so there we have him. It seems like he's even shifting in that argument that he gives there, you know, because I'm talking to him about his bill, which is a riot bill, um, quote-unquote, and he brings up this woman who's just walking towards, you know, uh, damage, and, and his implication is that she's going to go participate in the riot, but so far she's just walking there, and so I say, okay then, so what you're advocating we do is that 
she be convicted of rioting? And he's saying, no, that wouldn't happen. You couldn't do that. She would be arrested for violating a curfew. How, how does that, how does that grok with your reading? Uh, well, well, and I'll just read the bill again because he, he kept telling me to read the bill and I, I kept trying to read the bill to him and, and he didn't seem to want to accept that. But so his uh, pulling straight from the most recent, and I checked the most recent version of his bill, the definition of riot is quote, the assemblage of five or more persons engaging in conduct which creates an immediate danger of and or results in damage to property or injury to persons. A person commits the crime of riot if, after receiving an order to disperse by a law enforcement officer or when in violation of a curfew, the person intentionally intentionally participates in a riot. So given that definition... And 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 his argument. I mean, how does that how does that track with what he's saying, and then what's actually in the bill in your mind? Okay, well, I think there are two separate things. You know, one could be arrested for failure to disperse, which is what he sort of switched to in the middle of that. Um, if you get an order to disperse and there is no riot as defined by the bill, um, then it's only failure to disperse. If, however, there is a riot, as is defined by the bill, then you can be arrested for participating in it. And hmm. uh, you face the 24-hour hold and you face the 30-day minimum. Uh, I, I think it's worth looking at what the current definition of riot is and, and looking at the differences. Um, Alabama right now has a statute that says a person commits the crime of riot if with five or more person, other persons, he wrongfully engages in tumultuous and violent conduct and thereby intentionally or recklessly causes or creates a grave risk of public terror or alarm. Now, what the, the, the bill does is change a lot of that and the really critical parts of it. Uh, first of all, it says if, you fail, if you're engaging in right, you fail, failure to disperse. Um, it does not say the fit, the the order to fit order to disperse has to be lawful. So if you get an unlawful order to disperse, you're still subject to prosecution for that. Secondly, it says intentionally participating in the riot as opposed to intentionally engaging in the conduct. So if there are you know 50 people and you're at the back of the line and there's an order to disperse, even assuming it's lawful, and somebody at the front of the line throws a rock, um, at least by the terms of the statute, you can be subject to being charged with riot and subject to the mandatory hold and 30 30 days. Now, that, of course, is up to the discretion of the individual officers who are involved. Uh, And that, I think, raises another question, which is who is this bill actually aimed at you know it's not like we saw something like this uh because of you know protests and attacks on on journalists at trump rallies or in fact beating up of my friends at a trump rally it's not like we saw this because counter protesters in florence um uh against uh, my friends who were uh protesting the really grotesque a monument in front of the courthouse, the Confederate monument in front of the courthouse, uh, get get attacked by some guy in a motorcycle. No, it's because of protesters 
about Confederate symbols in the wake of the George Floyd uh, torture and murder. Uh, so we really can't even trust that the police are going to use their discretion in an even-handed way, regardless of the, the protestations. The entire thrust of the bill is to attack the Black Lives Matter protesters, to attack those who were protesting police violence, uh, police murders, who were protesting Confederate symbols. And, right. and given the discretion the police have, I think it's fair to say that it's more likely that someone's going to get charged with riot if they're engaged in an anti-police protest. Oh, but now, come on, David, you don't trust the police? Oh, I trust the police. Man. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that, that y'all brought up the current definition, though. Uh, this is Adam jumping in because uh, I was telling Joker before the show started that after that interview, I even went back and reread it again and again to see mm-hmm. maybe maybe I was missing something. I even showed other people the current definition on the books. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but as a layperson, that current definition looks a lot more clear and enforceable right. and, you know, understandable compared to what he's trying to change. Because I know he kept bringing up that he's trying to update the definition. Right. Well, in Alabama, I mean, that's not that uh, crazy of a proposition because we do have a lot of very uh, unclear and backwards language in our law. But I don't I really don't see how that is this case. Uh, it looks to me mm-hmm. that it is going to make the definition much worse. And, and as you much said, broader. David, um, I think you're right on with in terms of who this is prompted by. And, um, and inevitably, should this law pass or this bill become law, we know the discretion will be targeted one way versus the other. Right. Uh, and, and I don't think any of us could assume that rich folks will be targeted the same way as poor folks <laughs> or that, uh, you know, the the striking miners on a picket line will be treated the same way as the bosses on the other side and on and on and on. So, right. yeah, just, just really uh, appreciate you bringing up that current definition and as well what really is prompting this. Yeah. And and the next the next thing that I wanted to get to was the funding. Um, reading again from his bill, quote, a person commits the crime of inciting to riot if he or she commands, solicits, incites, funds, urges or otherwise aids and bets another person to engage in a riot or aggravated riot. He actually used and, and you said that you have like some doubts that this actually happened, but he actually used the example of somebody when talking about the need for this bill, somebody sitting in the Birmingham jail with a bag of cash, uh, bailing people out. But then when I pressed him on it, he was like, oh no, you would never be arrested for contributing to a bail fund. Let's play that clip, Adam. I mean, specifically about the funding, I mentioned that I gave money to, to bail people out of prison. I think that you could not unreasonably, under this definition, say that I'm funding a riot. Do you believe that I would be put, do you you believe that it would be right for me to be thrown in a cage for 30 days? No, absolutely not. That's your right to do that. And, 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 and there's no officer I know would take a charge like that to DA or a DA that would give you a warrant on that. So... What do you think? What What is your response to that, David? Uh, well, yeah. If 
Yeah, if he he keeps he keeps re- raising that that example of someone sitting in the you know in jail with a, with a bag of cash, which may have happened. I you know I, I hear that it's possible it may have happened once, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so the question then becomes why is the def- why is the definition as broad as it is? If mm. you know if you make it explicit that you cannot um, go and pay a cash bond for somebody who was arrested for rioting to get that person back out on the street to re-engage as if that could possibly happen. Because frankly, it takes several hours to get out under the best of circumstances. Right. Uh, you know, that's one thing. Contributing to a bail fund ahead of time is something that something else. Uh, you know, and the that then gets to another issue, which is really a problem, uh, which is prosecutors, you know, DAs particularly who get elected, who want to mm. play to the electorate, uh, and will, you know, may decide in election year to prosecute some people who either contribute to or create a bail fund to assist protesters. Uh, and then, you know, that, that, and that's not an unreasonable definite, you know, that's not an unreasonable interpretation. It's unreasonable right. to do, right? It's unreasonable yeah, to yeah. charge somebody for that, but it's not unreasonable to interpret the statute, the proposed statute to say that that's the basis of, of a charge. And, you know, yeah, I would I was going to say, I mean, I think you're hitting on the it's so broad in terms of the funding. It treats someone who like literally buys guns and ammunition and weapons for a quote unquote riot the same as if, you know, someone who is contributing to a bail fund. And, and that's mm-hmm. just insane. Yeah. And, it's- and and his defense constantly seemed to be that no officer would bring you up on this charge no da would prosecute it and it and it's like like you mentioned given the the strictness of this law like maybe that's true but also like you mentioned it could happen like this is like the law allows these the if this bill became law it would allow these things to happen under a properly motivated DA or city prosecutor. Sure. And and that's the issue. And, and that's what, you know, he, he didn't seem to want to recognize that. Yeah. I, you know, and, and you know, just remember that, you know, Alabama has this has this judicial had that may still be still be on the books as unconstitutional. This judicial override for capital cases in which somebody, you know, somebody is convicted of capital murder and the jury recommends life without parole, uh, a judge can still impose the death cell penalty. And the statistics show that during election years, judges use that judicial override more frequently than they do when when they're not up for re-election. Um, so the idea that wow. a prosecutor may do this just to play to the electorate is not that far-fetched. Right, right. And by the way, I just mentioned one other thing. So, you know, he, he kept talking about how he was um, working across the aisle and, you know, he's made all these changes in, in, in this bill 
to accommodate the objections of uh, Democrats. Um, I checked yesterday and uh, not a single Democrat voted for this bill as it evolved. <clears throat> right. Right. Yeah, that that's I mean, that's important to because that that was strange to me. Um, you know, his 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 focus on ostensibly bipartisanship in a bill that that passed through the state house along totally party lines yeah. um, and with with not only it wasn't like they just voted against it there was vehement opposition like it, there was very very passionate speeches from the democrats about the danger that this bill um presented and and so to to you know, I don't want to accuse him of of saying something that that he didn't do, but to to say that I spent all this time talking to Democrats, it just doesn't. It it it's not evident in the outcomes, and we can leave it at that. Right. Um, it obviously didn't work very well. Right. Uh, we've been talking to David Gespass, former president of the National Lawyers Guild. David, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Have a good day. You too. Uh, so let's go ahead and take a break. On the other side, we'll be talking to Thomas Dargan. He is an attorney for AFGE's American Federation of Government Employees, AFGE's VA Council, and advisor, and, and he is on the negotiating committee. Um, and we're going to be talking to him about VA workers' fight for their patients, their communities, and their rights. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller, and we will be right back. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project, or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Iron Workers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs, from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. 
Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know how viable clean and renewable energy is. And to that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. And they are working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about their work and how you can join at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the Southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855 617 9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855 617 9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller, and you're listening to the Valley Labor Report. If you have anything to add, you can always give us a call. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR, 844-899-8857. We just finished up a conversation with a former president of the National Lawyers Guild about the anti-protest bill that passed the state house a couple weeks ago. So if you missed that, you can always find us on our YouTube channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Up next, um, the American Federation of Government Employees, AFGE, represents 283,000 VA workers, and their VA council just began negotiations with the VA. So we brought on Thomas Dargan. He's a staff attorney for AFGE and and uh, part of the bargaining team. So, uh, Thomas, thanks for taking the time to join us today. I know that you're really busy with negotiations, so we do appreciate it. Glad to do it. Good morning. Good morning. So before we jump into the ongoing negotiations, can you give us a little bit of background information on the VA? Lots of people think about it as just, um, you know, uh, health care services for veterans. But there is and that is, to be fair, that that's the main part of what they do. But there is a broad range of services that the VA provides veterans, right? Sure. So at its core, the VA is the nation's largest integrated healthcare system, and it's the nation's best integrated healthcare system. Like you said, um, the the healthcare side of the house, or VHA, as some people call it, it's the biggest of the, the three main administrations within VA. It's where uh, veterans go to receive healthcare, whether it's primary care, um, you know, surgeries, any kind of specialty care um, that's available to them through the VA. They aren't being 
sent to uh, private providers or being you know shipped from one office to another. It is an integrated healthcare system where you can get uh, just about everything you need as a veteran patient. There's also the Veterans Benefits Administration or VBA. That's the part of uh, VA that deals with compensation and benefits uh, for veterans and beneficiaries who are entitled to um, those benefits as a result of their service to the nation. And there's also the National Cemetery Administration or NCA. Um, AFGE, as you mentioned, we represent about 283,000 VA employees across the country in all 50 states and in all three of those administrations. So there always seems to be some amount of controversy around the VA, despite the fact that it, it gets consistently high marks with veterans. Why do you think that that is? Yeah, I I guess I'll start my question by just emphasizing the point you just made, which is that outcomes and customer satisfaction from veterans are higher consistently at the VA than they are in the private sector. There have been efforts, uh, not just recently, but for years, um, to privatize the VA, um, to strip it of funding and to send uh, veterans to the private sector to receive care. Um, These are often community providers who, one, may not have the capacity to serve the veteran community, and they also don't have the specialized experience um, that VA workers do in knowing what veterans need, um, you know, and the unique ins and outs of veterans' health care. So there have been, you know, really campaigns from the the right wing of the country to to privatize the VA, to uh, turn it into basically a voucher system that pays for care delivered by private providers, uh, and that does not benefit uh, the veterans or the workers who are on the front lines of the VA every day, uh, especially now in the midst of the pandemic. Right, right. And, and, you know, so I I think that that you spoke a little bit uh, to that you know, the the to the extent that, you know, that there's a certain amount that these controversies are manufactured because, like you said, the outcomes and the satisfaction are both higher than the private sector. Uh, but to the extent that there are issues, I think that you pointed to the cause of those issues, which is, um, you know, attempted privatization, uh, funding cuts and, uh, you know, things like this, uh, attempts, attempts to sabotage the VA like we see attempts to sabotage every good government agency from the Postal Service to, uh, you know, to the VA to anything else that works for working people. There's always an attempt to uh, to try to help somebody make a buck off of it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the employees, the dedicated civil servants around the country, they're committed to the mission of the VA. They want to deliver the best health care and services to veterans that they possibly can. Um, And so we've got to make sure that there's the the right people, um, you know, providing the right support to those employees so that they can give the right services uh, to veterans. And that starts with staffing. It starts with funding, um, you know, technology, Mm -hmm. infrastructure. We need to make sure that the VA remains the the nation's best integrated healthcare system. Um, You know, can't leave it to the side and, and ship ship folks out to the private sector. It's just, it's not going to get the same um, consistently positive results um, that veterans and their families receive when they go to the VA. Right, right. And so the the Trump administration was an architect of, of, of some fights against uh, VA workers. Can you talk to us about some of those? Sure. Um, so, During the Trump administration, there was really an unprecedented attack on the federal workforce as a whole. Um, The former president issued 
three executive orders in May of 2018 that really went to the heart of what it meant to be a, a civil servant, what it meant to have due process, what it meant to work um, for the federal government, stripping away due process rights, the ability to defend yourself um, and appeal actions when you're unfairly targeted for discipline. That was really a government-wide uh, attack from the highest levels of the last administration. Specifically within VA, um, the the VA Accountability and Whistleblower Protection Act of 2017, mm-hmm. um, that went into effect in, in June of that year and was, um, you know, a drastic cut to the due process rights that uh, VA employees have when they're targeted for discipline. Um, you know, the, the union believes in fairness and due process. Uh, we need to make sure that everybody has a consistent uh, an accessible way to respond to um, disciplinary actions and investigations and that they have their chance to defend themselves. Uh, the last administration did everything it could to make sure um, that that was harder for employees. It was harder for union representatives, the people um, who are there to defend and, and help these employees to make sure that they get that due process. So, uh, yeah, it's been really a, a coordinated and sustained attack um, during the last administration, starting uh, with the passage of the VA Accountability Act back in June of 2017 uh, through the executive orders and, and much more in the, the last couple of years of that administration. And that law was ostensibly aimed at fighting bad management and people at the top, but it was used disproportionately on, um, you know, bottom of the totem pole, quote unquote, kind of workers, uh, low wage, um, you know, low, uh, uh, you know, the low wage workers of the VA, just the normal working folks. And it, and it was used against them in a in a manner that did not help veterans. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And so when VA went to Congress and asked for this new disciplinary authority, they pitched it as a way to hold managers accountable. Right. Accountability starts at the top. Um, VA gave examples and testimony of managers uh, who who stayed on the books too long. They weren't able to fire those people. And there was a, you know, a, a, a negative impact for veterans and employees, the workforce uh, and the VA as a whole. And what we saw in practice after that law was passed was, as you said, really a disproportionate um, targeting of low-wage workers and veterans themselves. You have to remember that a third of the VA workforce are veterans themselves. Many of these jobs are given um, to veterans with service-connected disabilities. For example, um, Mm. you know, the hardest working housekeepers in the country at the VA at facilities in every single state, those are veterans themselves, with many of whom have service-connected disabilities. And instead of firing those managers and holding them accountable, what we saw in the months and years after the Accountability Act was an unprecedented targeting of these low-wage workers who are veterans. You know, we saw 99% of housekeeper firings being uh, employees and and 1% of -hmm. them being managers. And not for the types of behavior that VA said it needed to correct when it asked for this disciplinary authority. We're talking about people showing up late to work uh, one hour, having a a Mm 20-year career at the VA um, you know, and in issues that can be corrected through counseling and, and other corrective action, instead of doing that and investing in the workforce uh, and correcting the behavior, 
in in a way that helps employees learn from these experiences. They're just firing veterans themselves from the VA workforce. So certainly it did not end up being used the way VA said um, it intended to do. Right, right. And so, well, let, let's speak to the let, let's speak to the, the skeptical listener for a second and we'll play devil's advocate. And they say, well, you know, our veterans deserve the highest standard of care. And if somebody is late, that means they don't care about the patients and whatever. And, and maybe the, the veterans will be better off if, if they get new staff. How does how, how do removing due process rights from VA workers and and uh, and and attacking them. How does that affect their ability um, to give care to our nation's veterans? The VA workforce, any workforce, right, operates successfully when its workers feel that they're treated with dignity, fairness, and respect. And there isn't a single person in this union who's going to stand up for patient abuse or for failing to provide uh, adequate care or provide the services that veterans need. No one from the union will ever take that position. Uh, the issue is making sure that there's there's consistency and fairness, that people have a chance to uh, confront uh, folks who are accusing them of wrongdoing, that they can respond to discipline, they can do so with the assistance of their union official, make sure that they're able to explain, um, y- you know, what's going on at the VA? Are there issues with understaffed work units? Do I not have the training and the tools and the resources that I need to perform my job safely and effectively? Uh, at the end of the day, we, we do need to make sure that employees are able to provide the best health care and services to veterans. But you need to have a, a workforce and a work environment that feels like their voices matter, right? That, that they aren't just a widget or a, another person that the VA thinks is dispensable that they can replace immediately. I mean, no employer benefits from a revolving door of of staff, right? I mean, you need to have people who are experienced, who know what's going on at the VA, how to handle these complex issues and uh, stripping people of their due process rights and and shuffling them out the door before they've had a chance to defend themselves. I mean, you're going to have, again, sustained issues with recruitment and retention if you create a workforce with that kind of dynamic and a, a work environment with that kind of dynamic. And I, I think I, I think hopefully that makes sense to people because yeah, I, I think that everybody, um, you know, whatever your uh, predisposition coming into this conversation is, um, you know, I think that that you like it when you're treated with, uh, you know, fairness and dignity and respect and that and that you like it when you believe that you are that that you're not being, you know, retaliated against or disciplined for, you know, immaterial non-material things like not mission critical things and and, you know you're given a chance to improve when you do mess up because everybody's human everybody does mess up and and you know that that we shouldn't just be thrown to the curb when things like that happen uh you know of course within reason like you know if if you screw up monumentally and 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 you end up you know endangering a patient's life you know these are these are different things but um so 
Before we talk about the on- ongoing negotiations, we had somebody in the YouTube chat ask us if uh, most VA clinics and hospitals in Alabama are organized and represented by a union, and uh, th- that is the that is the case. Uh, VA hospitals in Alabama are represented by AFGE, and and I believe that's everywhere. Thomas, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but actually down in Tuscaloosa just a couple weeks ago, AFGE Local 131 uh, protested. Um, in front of the VA to protest inadequate uh, patient safety and patient uh, care because, like, they weren't being given the funding and the staffing by the VA that they felt like. And so here we have the workers, you know, the what people what people want to say, you know, these lazy government union workers or whatever. They're going out and protesting because they're like, hey, we need more support because we care about our patients, you know. Uh, and of course, that's that's the case because you don't go into like. VA nursing if you want to get rich. You, you do something else. Um, but th- that's the case, isn't it, Isn't it, Thomas, that, that VA hospitals are all represented by FGE in Alabama? Yeah, so um, we, do, we do represent most um, of the, the facilities in Alabama. I know in Montgomery and Tuscaloosa and Birmingham, uh, we also have employees working on the VBA side of the house, uh, working on veterans' benefits, compensation, pension issues. Um, and AFG is the largest union within VA. We, we aren't the only union within VA. We're constantly trying to build coalitions and, and work with our brothers and sisters in the labor movement um, at facilities where we don't represent those employees to make sure that we're all um, we're all fighting the same fight. We're all fighting the good fight, making sure that veterans um, through through employees are being advocated for to make sure that there are enough tools and resources and staffing and equipment and everything that you need to run a healthcare system. Um, and, you know, of course, that's true in Alabama and every other state in the country. Yeah. So talk to us about the ongoing negotiations. Sure. So uh, as I mentioned, the the bargaining unit that we represent is 283,000 people. It's not only the largest bargaining unit in VA, it's the largest consolidated bargaining unit in the federal government and really anywhere in the country. It's incredibly diverse, right? We represent physicians and nurses. We represent um, clinical staff who are working, um, you know, in the radiology department, the compensation and pension department, the audiology department. I mean, every specialty clinic you can think of. Uh, also, the food service workers, the canteen workers, the housekeeping staff, and uh, all of the the hardworking civil servants on the benefit side of the house and at the cemetery administration. It's a huge bargaining unit. And that means that the collective bargaining agreement um, is really massive. Um, It covers such a diverse group of employees, and it is the foundation of the pillars we talked about with dignity, fairness, and respect. It is the document employees turn to to figure out what their rights are. It's the document managers turn to to figure out what their obligations are. And we need to make sure that it's improved upon um, and that it continues to be um, the document that it is now, uh, which is, again, the foundation of a workforce centered on dignity, fairness, and respect. Um, the, the VA under the last administration um, asked to reopen that contract, and that was consistent with what we saw really across the federal government and other agencies. Uh, the VA reopened the contract in December of 2017. Um, there were a few years of very contentious negotiations, uh, AFGE successfully made allegations of bad faith bargaining. We had neutral third parties saying that the VA bargained in bad faith with the union to go back and do it over again. And then President Biden came into office. Um, We've been living under a collective bargaining agreement from 2011 um, since then. 
and the Biden administration uh, and AFGE, we were able to execute a settlement agreement that put the parties back at the bargaining table, but just on 12 articles. Uh, and so that's where we are now. It's what's called a limited reopener of our contract. So the VA picked six articles to reopen. The union picked six articles to reopen. Uh, and I'm actually out in Phoenix, Arizona right now. We're negotiating at the uh, Veterans Hospital there. Um, for our first bargaining session. It'll continue um, certainly throughout this year, allowing the parties to sit down a couple weeks a month and try to reach agreement on those 12 issues. And what are, uh, you know, what are maybe the top three that uh, priorities that the union has going into, the, into these negotiations? Sure. Um, so our decisions on, on which articles to reopen were really informed by the, the COVID-19 pandemic. It's been an unprecedented change um, in all of our lives for every American. But as you can imagine, working on the front lines of a healthcare system in a pandemic, um, we've learned a ton uh, about what what we need as far as safety goes, um, what we need as far as, um, you know, reassignments and detailing employees, making sure that they are trained uh, and that they have the tools and resources they need when they need to cover for someone uh, who's out of work on short notice. So, uh, you know, it's hard to pick three, but I'd say, you know, certainly the safety article, the union is always going to want to make sure that employees feel safe, that they know where to go. Um, if they want to report a, a safety concern, that they have adequate PPE, um, that they're aware of what OSHA is doing to, to keep the workplace safe, um, and that they're able to report concerns they have about patient safety and employee safety. That's a, a huge one for us. I'd also say um, upward mobility. Uh, the VA, um, you'll, you'll hear if you talk to workers around the country, they don't feel like the VA invests in them as a worker. There aren't enough opportunities mm -hmm. for advancement. The VA in many communities um, in Alabama and across the country is the largest employer. Um, in neighborhoods and communities. They want to feel workers who are at the VA, like there are opportunities for them to move up. If you do well in your job, you want your manager to see you, right? You want the VA to reward that exceptional service to uh, to the nation and to veterans. And um, when we talk to employees, they feel like they're, they're stuck at times. Um, there aren't um, you know, we're, we're just trying to, uh, to do our job, do it to the best of our ability, but you want to look long-term, right? I mean, what, what's it going to look like for me in three years and five years and 10 years? And am I going to be able to move up and, and, uh, provide for myself and my family? So that's a, that's a huge one for us as well. Um, and then I'd say, yeah, I guess those, those are, those are two important ones. I touched on a third one, which is an issue of details. What that means is just mm. when you you move an employee on short notice for a short time frame, uh, VA workers, you might think a, a nurse is a nurse or um, you know a, a nursing assistant is a nursing assistant. You could go do that job anywhere for any reason. That's not the case. Um, patient care is specialized. Um, like I'm a lawyer, for example. If you ask me to go mm -hmm. into landlord tenant law tomorrow, right? I'm not going to be able to do that for you. I'm a I'm a labor <laughs> right. lawyer. Um, and and healthcare staff is is just like that. So when you're detailing an employee on short notice, uh, we need to make sure you know um, what's expected of you, right? You need to know the policies mm -hmm. and the procedures of that new work unit. Uh, you've got to make sure you have the training that you need, the mentorship and, and the resources to get the job done. We don't want to put anyone in an unsafe work environment for, for that employee, for their coworkers, and certainly for veterans. So we want to make sure that um, the article on those details and, and those temporary reassignments um, address those concerns. Thomas, thank you very much for your time. That was very informative. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
Absolutely. We've been talking to Thomas Dargan. He is an attorney for American, the American Federation of Government Employees, and he's on the bargaining team for the Veterans Affairs Council of AFGE. And we've just finished talking about the negotiations that they've gotten with the VA uh, going and on Jacob, right now. There yep. were there were two a couple of things there that I thought were really interesting, uh, and one of them is connected to a comment we got uh, on YouTube. So Brian wrote in in the chat that. Due process for these type of civil service employees is important, not just for all the reasons we laid out here, but also as whistleblowers. And I think that's something that often Mm -hmm. gets left out of the conversation, especially when we're talking about due process rights for public sector folks. Of course. Uh, Especially, you know, the VA, that's very important that folks feel comfortable being a whistleblower mm-hmm. and if you have no protections on the job and you can be arbitrarily fired i mean how likely are you right. to blow the whistle on something that you see uh so i think that was very uh very insightful comment from brian appreciate you sending that in and the other thing that uh chris mentioned right before we wrapped was uh the union fighting for their members to have some upward mobility and that kind of cuts against some of the propaganda that you hear about unions of, oh, well, they just want everybody to be treated the same, paid the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, doesn't matter how hard you work. You're, you're never going to get above the others. Well, that's not true. And it certainly varies by contract. It varies by sector and union. Uh, but, you know, you heard it here, folks. Here's, here's a union right here fighting to make sure their members uh, can Advance mm-hmm. uh, and if, and can be rewarded for working hard and doing a good right. job. So, right. uh, yeah, I thought that was worth pointing out. But really appreciate uh, having Chris on and uh, appreciate your questions because, like you said, there's always controversy about the VA, but mm-hmm. it's often not really connected right. to the reality. Right. Yeah, I somebody told uh, somebody told a story on Twitter about a like local labor council president um, that had a heart attack. And when the ambulance came, he said to uh, uh, drive me to the nearest union hospital. <laughs> and I said, I, I said, unfortunately, I think I'd have to be taken out of state. And somebody said, no, you just need to quali- qualify for VA benefits. So there you unfortunately, go. I don't qualify for VA benefits. So Yeah, and it, it is uh, something you pointed out towards the beginning, though, is the parallels between the attacks on the VA and the rest of the public sector. Right. Because, you know, I couldn't help but think of education of course, given my background and think about how uh, legislators think that making it easier to arbitrarily punish and fire (laughs) teachers is somehow going to recruit and retain better talent. Right. Right. It it doesn't add up. No, not at all. If you want to contribute to the conversation, the phone number is 844-899-8857, 844-899-TVLR. Profits for the bosses continue to soar, and they are resisting sharing the value that the workers create with the workers who create that value. The story is no different in professional sports, where bosses have canceled spring training for Major League Baseball, and now the first two regular season games. Means Morning News on Means TV broke it down well. Adam, let's play that clip. There are basic facts at the heart of this labor dispute, and Manfred and the owners know it. The league's current compensation system drastically underpays younger players who are at the peak of their careers. And this has a downstream negative effect on veteran players 
who can't find contracts reflecting their worth based on years of service to the league because owners know they can get the same, if not more, production from a younger player who, as I said, is structurally underpaid. Team owners have increasingly exploited this discrepancy in baseball, and the result is that players' wages have been declining in recent years. Meanwhile, baseball has seen its revenue go up. Every owner has seen their own club appreciate in value since it was purchased. Manfred wants you to think that the opposite is true, that it's the owners who are struggling, not the players. And I think the proposal that we made is right in line uh, with the type of increases we've seen in the past. I think you also need to remember that the last five years um, been very difficult years from a revenue perspective for the industry, given the pandemic. You know, most teams don't have to reveal their books, so the owners can just claim whatever they want. But the Atlanta Braves do have to reveal their financials. That's because they're owned by a publicly owned corporation, Liberty Media. And guess what we learned from that disclosure? That man, Fred, is full of shit. The Braves earned a profit last season of a, a profit, by the way, not revenue, but a profit of one hundred and four million dollars. Are we to believe that the Braves are the only profitable team in baseball? I don't think so. Again, there are basic facts at play here. There's a large pot of money that the owners possess and it keeps getting bigger. But the share going to workers is getting smaller. Even this year, the owners want to expand the postseason, which means more games, which means more ticket sales and TV deals, which means more profit that owners don't want to share with the players. And players aren't even that militant about getting what should rightfully be theirs. I mean, there is no baseball without the players, but baseball will be just fine without the owners. It would be better, in fact. All right, so let's dig into that a little bit more since we've got a little bit more time than they do on Means Morning News. Um, there's a really good article in The Nation titled, Baseball Players Can't Live on a Cup of Coffee. A cup of coffee is what it's called when players get a short stint in the major leagues, which is incredibly common. From the article, average major league salary, the average major league salary is $4 million. The median yearly salary, though, is $1.2 million. That average is skewed upwards by the mega salaries of a handful of top players. The top 100 highest paid players earn 52% of all salaries. 40% of players make the MLB minimum salary of $570,000 a year. Now, maybe you're thinking, in 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 quote of the article, now maybe you're thinking, like, $570,000, that's like, that's a lot of money. But remember the cup of coffee that I told you about. Again, from the article, 25% of players last only one season. The average service time of MLB, MLB players was 4.79 years in 2003, and that fell to 3.71 years in 2019, the most recent year for which figures are available. It takes a lot, takes a lot of work and sacrifice to get even one or two seasons in the major leagues. So effectively, what you would hope for, especially from such a profitable industry, is that the short time you do get in the majors helps to compensate for the sacrifices that you made there. Because there are thousands of ball players like Dave Stegman, who was interviewed for this article. He spent 11 years in, the, in professional baseball. He played over 1,000 games, mostly for minor league teams. 
only 172 of those games were in the majors. During the six seasons he played on the big league clubs, the minimum salary rose from $21,000 to $40,000 a year, but Stegman only saw a fraction of that uh, because of his limited time on the major league rosters. Another former major league pitcher told the uh, told the author of the article, who did not want to be uh, they didn't want to be identified. He pointed out that most of his professional career was spent in the minor leagues, where he made between seven and ten thousand dollars per year. Seven and ten thousand dollars per year. He said, "Quote: It was so strange. I was so close to being in the big leagues, but I qualified for and received food stamps." And, of course, that's going to be the case with the people that are employed here in Alabama for the Rocket City Trash Pandas. Those the, those minor, minor league ballplayers, they don't make anywhere near uh, what most of the people that they're entertaining make. And all this, uh, <laughs> while contrary to what MLB Commissioner uh, Manfred wants you to think, the league is raking in money. The league is raking in money. The average value of major league teams increased to an all-time high of $1.9 billion in 2020 before the pandemic. Baseball's revenue from TV deals with ESPN, Fox, and TBS grew from $1.5 billion in 2021 to $1.84 billion starting this year, which is an almost a 20% increase. Meanwhile, the median player salary has fallen from its peak of 1.65 million in 2015 to 1.15 million in 2020 which is a drop of 18%. Let's take a look at that salary versus revenue uh, graph on the stream, Adam. Wow. Yeah, I mean that's uh pretty stark to see the value of the teams going up about 20% while the value of player salaries is going down about 20%. Yeah. Uh doesn't get much more clear than that. No. No, not it, it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, again, from the article, this is a really good article. I really recommend y'all go and check it out. It is um, uh, what was the uh, what was the title again? Let's see. Uh, baseball players can't live on a cup of coffee. It and I'll really, put that in the chat for folks. It really goes into detail about this, and it's in the Nation. And actually, the author of the article—that's how I found out about it. The author of the article did an interview with um, with Ed Flash Ferentz on America's Workforce Radio podcast, which is another thing that I recommend y'all listen to. It's really good. I listen to it all the time. Um, but from the article, the big ticket headline grabbing signings obscure MLB's biggest problem, which is anemic salary growth. The average MLB salary last season was flat compared to 2015, and it's up only 21% from a decade ago. Meanwhile, salaries have nearly doubled in the NFL and the NBA during the same time period because those players have been able to tie the revenue, tie their salaries to the revenue that they generate. But MLB, the MLB, the commission does not want to do that because they want to keep more of the money that the players create for them. One thing that the bosses would really like to do is to turn the public against the players by pointing to the damage that they, the bosses, are causing to stadium workers and blaming it on the players. Because, of course, the players are not mandating this lockout. 
the players would be fine to continue playing under the old contract while uh, the while current contract negotiations continue, and they have made that explicit in press releases from their union. Um, but the uh, the bosses want to make you think, that, despite that, that it's the players' fault. But the players are totally willing to play uh, while they continue negotiations. It's the boss that is not. Um, but the stadium workers, they're not falling for it, which is amazing. We love to see that because you could you could imagine a world where stadium workers, many of whom make less, uh, most of whom make less than an MLB player will in one season. From their press release, Unite Here uh, is the union that represents a lot of these workers. Once again, on behalf of the union that represents thousands of ballpark stadium workers across the U.S., Unite Here stands in solidarity with the baseball players that are currently locked out unfairly by the team owners. It's clear that the players are being squeezed out by greedy owners who could end this all if they were to just agree to the players' reasonable demands. Meanwhile, it's not just the fans who will be impacted by the owners' decisions. It's the tens of thousands of ballpark workers and members of the communities these teams play in uh, that will feel the most harm by the owners' greed. It's the low-wage and tipped hospitality workers who already have seen a fair amount of disruption to their livelihoods in recent seasons that will bear the brunt of this. It's the taxpayers that funded many of these owners' prized stadiums that will see the loss of income. And so we, we love to see that. Even before the MLB Players Association announced a $1 million hardship fund for stadium workers affected by the boss's decisions in an amazing show of solidarity. In the short term, the players deserve everything that they're asking for. In the long term, we should oust the owners uh, (laughs) because they do not contribute anything at all to the playing of the sport or any sport, frankly, for that matter. Um, and, And it's just it's very frustrating seeing what's going on here um uh, w- but you know I-, I don't watch sports a whole lot but of uh you know this came across my radar because i do see a lot of of things that happen in the labor world and it's very frustrating seeing this kind of stuff uh adam i think that you watch sports a bit more than me i mean have you wh- what has been your how is it seen in the general public this this uh yeah, I mean, I think from what I can tell, just, you know, in the sports world, there seems to be a tremendous amount of sympathy for the players and the players union. Uh, I've seen very little uh, amount of folks taking the side of the commissioner or the owners, uh, even, you know, fairly uh, reactionary sports page writers, uh, not always the most progressive group of folks, uh, not necessarily pro-worker type of people, but uh, I think it's just so clear in this case what's happening. And, you know, the commissioner's gambit to do this lockout and to set these arbitrary deadlines, because make no mistake, these are deadlines from the commissioner, not from any sort of, uh, you know, tangible reason here. He just decided we're going to have this deadline, and if we don't meet this deadline, well, then we're going to cancel some games. Uh, that is not being bought by folks, from what I can tell, uh, which is great. I think folks are starting to pick up, uh, and I think we've seen a lot of organizing and coverage of organizing of the minor league players, too. That probably helps mm-hmm. uh, as we you know, deal with this contract fight, because I think folks are starting to pick up on the fact that Yes, there are some athletes who are extremely well compensated, 
but that's not all of them or even the majority of them. And even those who are paid quite well are being paid quite well for labor that very few human beings on this earth can even perform. Right. And it's only something that can be performed for a very short amount of time. So you mentioned, you know, folks making five, six hundred thousand dollars, but you may only make that for a year or two. And then what right. do you do? You may not have even gone to get a college education because you were focused on your uh, baseball career. Um, you know, if you are just one of those rank and file players, you're not going to have enough clout to get a car dealership right. and all these uh, advertising deals. So, you know, I, I express, you know, as a sports fan and as a unionist, all of my sympathy and solidarity is with the players uh, and their union. I really hope to see a victory here, and I hope that uh, this is a moment for sports fans who maybe are not close followers of labor politics to start to think about how this situation resonates mm-hmm. with their own lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in sports, uh, the labor relations are a lot more uh, explicit verbally, I would say, in the right. sense of they – love to talk about players as assets. Mm -hmm. They talk about players in terms of their contract values, uh, their impacts on salary cap, these kind of things, you know. Uh, It's it's a lot less hidden than it is in typical work life. Uh, Your boss definitely thinks of you as nothing but uh, the value you can create. But in (laughs) sports, they're a lot more clear about that. Right. Flip on ESPN or Fox Sports and, and you'll hear that kind of conversation. You know, is that player worth that amount of money in a contract and that kind of thing? So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a very promising trend and I can't help but wonder if that also has to do with the resurgence of labor activism and, and the resurgence of working class activism, maybe bleeding over into the sports world. Let's hope. Let's hope. Um, and and the minor league players could definitely use a dose of unionism. I mean, seven to ten thousand dollars a year is just insane. Um, and then and, spending- and you think about how much. I mean, probably a lot of people have been to some of those Rocket City trash, trash Panda games. I mean, so many people attend those. They've got this huge, nice stadium, and they probably only make seven to ten thousand dollars a year. I mean, it's it's really crazy how underpaid they are, um, and how much money people are making off of the thing that they do. I mean, right. it's. it's Meanwhile, they are putting their bodies on the line and cannot spend time with their family. They spend a huge amount of time on the road. Um, A lot of like the minor league players. I know back during the Huntsville Stars days up here, uh, most of those guys were staying, you know, four to an apartment (sighs) in some fairly, you know, mediocre apartments here in town. Uh, And I can't Mm. imagine it's gotten much better. Yep. Let's go ahead and go to a break really quick. We've been talking about the MLB lockout. Of course, you can always go back and watch the show if you missed part of it on uh, YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to be right back with Harvey J.K. talking about the conservative hijacking of our history. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. They have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and they secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about their work advocating for customers and to join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW 558. 
we have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW 558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855 617 9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855 617 9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Hometown Action is a proud sponsor of the Valley Labor Report, and we're here to help keep you in the loop on the assault on your right to protest, picket, and peaceably assemble in Alabama. The anti-protest bill is back this year, and it's as bad as ever. There is huge interest in building worker power and increasing unionization in Alabama that has corporations scared. Don't let their influence on our state legislators become another tool to arrest striking workers and union supporters. This racist bill is especially problematic for black organizers and unnecessarily gives law enforcement broad discretion to define even small peaceful gatherings as a riot. Tell your Alabama legislators to say no to House Bill 2. We've set up an easy way for you to do that. You can go to hmtn.link slash hb2 where you'll find more information and an email template you can use right from your smartphone. That link is hmtn.link slash hb2. You'll also find more info on social media at Hometown Action. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Come on, you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union 
has come in here to dwell. Alabama's only union talk radio show. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. If you want to weigh in on anything we've been talking about, feel free. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. Just a reminder that you can always go back and listen to the full show and any individual clips including our last conversation with Thomas Dargan about the VA negotiations. You can do that all on our YouTube channel. Up next, Harvey J.K. is the Ben and Joyce Rosenberg Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, an award-winning author of numerous books, including Thomas Paine and The Promise of America, and recently... Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, both of which I've read and am a fan of. But most importantly and illustriously, he is our next guest. Professor Kay, thanks for talking to us today. I appreciate it. Thank you. And I want to say one little tiny correction. I am Professor Emeritus of Democracy and Justice because a year, oh. a year and a half ago, I decided to retire. I th- it, it was a voluntary decision, but... I, I felt compelled or coerced into doing it by the uh, pandemic as I could not go into the classroom to teach and would have to do it online. I understood mm. that it w- I could possibly do it, but I thought I could accomplish more if I was doing conversations with folks like you guys. Gotcha. Gotcha. OK, well, I I, uh, I appreciate that correction and and I do appreciate your time. I, I know that uh, you do a lot of stuff like this, so so we do appreciate it. Well, let me just say that I. I'm a labor unionist. I belong to the American Federation of Teachers right now, the retired section, you might say. And if I get a request from labor, that takes priority. Nice. (laughs) Well, we definitely appreciate it. And I I am a a former history teacher myself. So having you on is definitely a a great thing for me personally. So fantastic. uh, if nobody else enjoys it, I'm definitely going to enjoy it today. (laughs) So, Harvey, a big part of your life's, life's work is trying to wrest a sort of admiration for the history of the United States and the use of its, of its history from the hands of the right wing in this country. Can you talk to us about why it is that the right has such a firm hold on these things today? Well, first of all, they've been very aggressive about it. That, let's let's face that. And, let, and we could talk about it throughout American history, but let's talk especially about what happened in the course of the 1970s. And I fully accept that a lot of people may not even have been born yet in the 1970s, but that's about the time I was finishing my PhD. I was looking for a university job, and it was very evident that the, what became known as the new right was going to do everything in its power, literally to hijack the American past. And what I mean by that is that they were going to tell a story, a story of the making of America that would literally suppress the memory of the struggles that went into the making of the freedoms and especially the story of the making of the democratic achievements of the generation of the 1930s and the generation of the 1960s. And the 60s, is I'm I was late in the 60s as a as a college student, but I was very much a part of that generation. And moreover, what was really fascinating about it is that this was an an an, an initiative, an effort that, though common across the right wing, was 
really led by the man who would become president in 1980, Ronald Reagan. I mean, I think for a start, the liberal and left political spectrum took just could not get serious about Reagan. They couldn't quite grasp his capacity to harness the past for the purposes of arguing for lower taxes, the deregulation of capital, the busting up of unions, you name it. And he was prepared to do it. And frankly, what happened is that it wasn't just their energy on the right. And it wasn't just the fact that they were a well-funded set of initiatives by the right, which, by the way, all too often centrist, soon to be known as neoliberal Democrats, bought into it all. It's also the case that on the left, there was an almost knee-jerk reaction. In other words, the left had gotten almost cynical about the American past. In other words, or most of the time was spent on decrying the exploitation and the oppression, the faults and failings of in, in the American story. And as a consequence, when the likes of Reagan and others celebrated the American story as divinely ordained, as a, uh, as a story of, you know, capitalism and individualism and all it provided for Americans, when they would do those kinds of things, the, the, the response by, by the left was a kind of knee jerk one to remind everyone of how awful the American story has been. Now, I'm not saying all historians did this, but what I'm getting at is the common response in a public fashion was to decry the hijacking of history, not by challenging that hijacking, but literally by trying to deconstruct it alone, okay, to take it apart by referring to, you know, the failure of the founders to, in, to, to end slavery, the... Um, the story of labor movements that somehow had been marked by racist patterns and practices Uh, over and over again. It was a kind of embarrassment on the part of the left regarding the American story. And what we've seen is that it, it even continues to some extent today. And I'll be very blunt about it. You've got a, a major onslaught continuing by the right to try to control the teaching of history in the schools. And this has been going on since the 1980s, in fact. And their target is built around this idea that the 1619 Project is going to cultivate a disdain for the American story among young people. Now, no decent American history, and I'll say this first and foremost as a, as a professor and a scholar, no decent telling of the American story would fail to come to grips with slavery, would come to, fail to come to grips, for that matter, with the degree to which violence was used against both both black and decidedly in many areas where segregation occurred, white workers as well. I mean, no history would avoid telling that. But the story should that we should w- wish to promote in my to my mind is a story that asks, how is it that the American promise actually has been advanced? in the course of 230 plus years and what kinds of struggles went in to creating the makings of a democratic Republic in the American revolution to remember the degree to which it was black slaves leaving plantations and white workers recognizing that the viciousness and, and, and the vile character of slavery that led this in enabled Lincoln, in fact, to sign the Emancipation Proclamation and also led him to include inside the ranks of the Union forces. I know I'm talking to Alabamans, but you'll excuse this version of the story, I hope. 
a quarter of a million. <laughs> it's the story we need to hear in Alabama. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, yeah, well, a quarter of a million African Americans, mostly given their numbers, escapees from plantations in the South, but equally blacks who wanted to serve the Union cause, and similarly, farmers from Wisconsin and workers from Pennsylvania. That that's what enabled us to to bring it in to the scourge of slavery. Now, history doesn't always move forward, no matter how dynamic forces of progress are. But it's also the case. Let's go to the let's go to the 1930s and 1940s. I mean, we have a tendency all the more these days to not only run from the American story because of the horrors that did exist, but literally, as I said, to fail to assert, to advance the story of progress and by the way, as a sidebar to that, we have a tendency on the left to want to take down heroes. We, t- we, we want to take down our own heroes. In other words, it's not only like, let's pull down a Robert E. Lee statue. Okay, we'll find reasons to take down the likes of a Lincoln statue in some parts of the country, if you get, or to change the name of schools from the names of revolutionaries to folks who might have a more sort of contemporary sound to them. Okay, well, let me come back. So in the 1930s, so, I mean, notice I'm going to be referring to the revolution the Civil War and the New Deal against the Great Depression and World War II. And the reason I say this is these were moments where Americans, despite all of our faults and failings, despite how much we left undone, these are moments that actually, if you like, reveal the very radical character of the American story. Because when the promise of America was mortally threatened, in a universal fashion, so, uh, Americans founded themselves to rise above the, cl- the inequalities and the oppression, everything else, and not to be, if you like, blunted by all of that, but to actually save the American promise and advance the American promise by going radical. As I said, the makings of a democratic republic, the abolition of slavery, this, these made America freer more equal and more democratic. And then in the 1930s, the worst economic and social catastrophe ever in the, the Great Depression, they, not only did they elect a decidedly progressive figure, Franklin Roosevelt, to the presidency, but they helped propel FDR even to go beyond the kinds of progressive initiatives he wanted to pursue. And really, I, I think we underestimate the degree to which the 1930s New Deal, both in terms of the initiatives by Roosevelt and the New Dealers and the Democrats, and all the more by working people in all their diversity, the degree to which that really did involve something of a revolution in American public life. Government would be responsive and representative to an ever greater extent of American working people. And we saw the enactment of Social Security. We saw the enactment of the National Labor Relations Act, which, by the way, the National Labor Relations Act, however weakened and devastated its powers are today, It was the case that when it was enacted, it placed the federal government not just in between capital and labor. It placed the federal government behind the workers' efforts to guarantee their right to organize. On top of that, think about the initiatives that the, the Rural Electrification Agency, which brought hundreds of thousands, especially of southern farmers, the power of electricity because the private corporations wouldn't do it. So the REA created rural cooperatives. I mean, imagine the difference between having to worry about a barn fire versus the ability to turn on electricity in a safe manner to to light a barn or to light a homestead. So 
these are, these are moments that were created from the bottom up by admittedly, if you like, revolutionary and, and decidedly radical and progressive leaders, but enabled those folks to do. I mean, I could go on and on. The point is that we need to read. We need to, as I said in the title of that, that book, we need to take hold of our history. We need to remind ourselves of who we are and what we are capable of doing. I, I, I've lectured enough for a moment. <laughs> no, I, I think that's I, that is something that I have always been sympathetic to, and I have always been a bit off put by uh, some tendency. The, the you know, uh, I think it's it's a rather minor tendency, but I do think there is a tendency on the left to dismiss the American story wholesale, and I've always been a bit off-put by that. We're about to run out of time here on the radio, but we are going to continue our conversation with Harvey J.K. online, so you can find us on Facebook or on YouTube if you want to continue listening to that conversation. Um, before we wrap here on the radio, I want to do a couple of plugs. I was on Ben Burgess's show on Monday, debunking anti-union arguments. You can find his, uh, uh, You can find that on his YouTube channel. You can leave us a voicemail at 844-899-TVLR. We've got a new hat. If you want to go to our store, uh, tvlr.fm, you can uh, get that. Pre-orders in March 11th. It'll be delivered in mid-April, and you can become a sustaining member at the same place. Folks, that is it for our time on the radio. We appreciate your time, uh, and we're going to be talking more to Harvey J.K. and Hayden and Braxton on the other side. All power to the workers. All power to the workers.